Welcome to Plodcast, episode 48. Good to have you with us. Uh, I appreciate you spending, spending your precious time listening to this. So, identity politics is, is making uh, ferocious inroads into the church. And there's no way that identity politics could be making those inroads into the church unless we were having an identity crisis. The church would be the church would not be susceptible at all to the allure of identity politics if we were not having an identity crisis. Our identity, we're Christians, our identity is in Jesus Christ. That's our fundamental foundational identity. What are you in the first instance? What are you in the first place? Your answer should be, I'm a child of God. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm, um, I'm a forgiven, um, forgiven sinner, adopted into the family of God by grace alone. That's my identity. That's, that's the bedrock identity. Now, there are other things that uh, contribute to our composite identity, but every, every believer, every member of the elect, who's going, everyone who's going to wind up in heaven someday, has to have the identity of being in Christ. So um, in the book of Ephesians, the phrase in him or in Christ um, or related phrases occurs over 30 times in Ephesians. In Paul's writings, it occurs over 170 times. It's one of, the, it's one of Paul's central themes. We have union with Christ. We have union with Christ. Now, that's, that's our identity. That's our starting point. Now, we can bring in other aspects of our identity to flavor and suit, but they, they must not be allowed to compete with our foundational identity. And our, our foundational identity is, is something that, um, if it's not found in Christ, it's, it's, we're, we're going to have the whole thing fracture into a million pieces, which is what's happening. If, if, if my foundational identity is in Christ, the fact that um, I'm a male or a Vietnam-era vet or of Scottish descent or a guitar player, those, those things can be added to the mix. So he's foundationally a Christian, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who also likes to play the guitar, who's, uh, who's done some research and found out that his ancestors came from this part of the world, and, and so on. But if you remove that identity in Christ, if you take that out of consideration, and all you have, or what you start with, or what you arbitrarily seize on, is the fact that I have white skin, and that guy over there has black skin, and I'm going to make that my identity, um, there is no way to bridge that gap. You have to put, put this another way. You can't bridge the gap between Jew and Greek, or between black and white, or between male and female. That, though the differences and tensions and difficulties that exist between all of the, you know, the the Scythians and the, you know, whoever it was they marauded, uh, you can't make peace with those different groups by tying them together in the attic. The work has to be done at the foundation. 
if it's not done at the if it's not done at, at the foundation, it's not going to be done at all. And that's why you can see in uh, as identity um, as identity politics as coming into the church, race relations and relationships between these various groups are getting worse, not better. It's like um, it's like that woman in the Gospels. The more the doctors treated her, the the worse it got. Um, identity politics applied to sinners of who who are male and female, or who are black or white, or who are Asian, or who come from this group or that group. Identity politics will do nothing but inflame resentments. There, it's it's miracle grow for resentment and bitterness. You're not going. You're not going to solve a blessed thing by doing it that way. Um, what you have to do is say, um, look, "Look, you may be Asian, you may be black, you may be white, you may be a woman, you may be a man, but all of you have one thing in common, and that is that your heart is black. You're a sinner. You are um, depraved. You are fallen." You are corrupt. You, you are by nature an object of wrath. So my first, my first solidarity with a black brother is found in the fact that he's just as big a mess as I am. And his solidarity with me is the recognition that I'm just a, as big a mess as he is by nature. By nature, we're both objects of wrath. We have that in common, at least. We're both skunks. We're both bad. We're both fallen. We're both sinners. We, that's, that's a shared um, common experience. Our hearts are black. Then, uh, and, and, but that by itself, although it's a, there's a weird kind of solidarity there, we, it would just result in a war if uh, we didn't go anywhere else. Once I recognize that I'm a sinner and he recognizes that he's a sinner and we both recognize it, in repentance, and we turn to and we turn to God through Christ, we are forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ. Um, our hearts are all the same color, black, and Jesus' blood is all the same color. It's red, and that red blood applied to black hearts raises us up so that we can say truly, as it says in Galatians, in, in Christ there's, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave, free, male, female. Um, we're all one in Christ Jesus. That has to be our foundational identity. That has to be the fundamental identity. Um, if we think that we are going to, if we can bypass the gospel and build, um, you know, uh, focus on racial reconciliation without reference to the fact that blacks are sinners too, Women are sinners too. Men are sinners too. Boys and girls are sinners too. The Scythians are sinners too. If we tried to have any kind of harmony that doesn't confront that fact, which humbles everybody, um, what happens is you you are putting if if people have not been humbled by the fact of sin, then and and, and they've they've not had to stoop at that at, at that at the doorway of the church submitting to baptism, confessing their sins, if they've not had to stoop that way and they just walk into the church in the side door and you put them in charge of racial reconciliation 
and they've not had to stoop, they've not had to repent, they've not had to confess their sins, what you're doing is you're putting proud people in charge of racial reconciliation. And when you put proud people in charge of racial reconciliation, what you will find is that they start using the data that's all around them, the various sins that you're that people have committed, the things that are the reason why we have to have attempts at reconciliation at all. Um, what what you're doing is you're putting proud people in charge of that, and that means that all the evidence that they see, all the things that they see around them, are going to be um, how should we say used as weapons. That's it's never going to work. So we are continuing on with Plodcast 48. My book uh, this time is Suicide of the West by Jonah Goldberg. Now I know a few episodes back I, I did a review of a book review of Suicide of the West and talked about it a little bit uh, there, but I'm going through um, Suicide of the West now, and I, I'd like to say a, th- a few things about it. First, I commend the book highly. Uh, it's just it's just a fantastic book. A lot of great, uh, a lot of great information there. A lot of good stuff. Um, but I'm going to be I'm going to be critical in this review. But don't let that criticism take away from the fact that I think the book is magnificent, and you should buy three copies. Okay, so um, James Burnham wrote uh, a book back, oh man, 40s or 50s, with the same title, Suicide of the West, and uh, which, I've read, which I've read a couple of times. And um, uh, Goldberg's book is, I think, better, uh, more optimistic, and, well, I, I don't want to get, I, I don't want to run down that rabbit trail. I think, I think that uh, Goldberg's book is better, more encouraging, but there's still some um, foundational flaws in it. Goldberg spends a good bit of time uh, distinguishing basically the two streams of thought in the West uh, since the um, 18th century, uh, the thought of Jean-Jacques Rousseau on the one hand and John Locke on the other. And uh, he basically says individ- the, the, the worldview stream that it emphasizes individual responsibility and liberty is the, is the Lockean stream, and the, the stream that emphasizes the collective is Rousseau. Now, I think he's exactly right uh, about this. Uh, C.S. Lewis somewhere calls Rousseau the father of the totalitarians, and I think that this is exactly right. He is the father of the totalitarians, and John Locke is in many ways the father of, um, uh, of civil liberty. So that's, that's true. He spends a lot of time um, um, attacking Rousseau, and I can, uh, frankly, I, I can take a lot of this. I, um, I, I love it when people attack Rousseau. I love it when they, they uh, show what a hypocrite he was, how, how destructive his thought was, and so on. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of that good stuff in this book. Also, uh, he um, spends a good, goodly amount of time explaining what a terrible president Woodrow Wilson was. And, and you can get a lot of this same kind of uh, stuff when you read his uh, uh, Goldberg's uh, book, Liberal Fascism, which I think is one of the best books I've ever read. So that, I'll just say that. Goldberg is one of my favorite writers. All of that said, um, 
here is the um, here's the criticism. The first line in the book is that there is no God in this book. Um, Goldberg wants to argue um, he he's not an atheist. He he acknowledges that he has certain beliefs about God, but he doesn't want those beliefs to come into the book at all. At the same time, he shows he demonstrates that. The Wilsonian project, when Wilson was president, was Darwinian through and through. The whole idea of an evolving, changing, living constitution was um, borrowed from Darwinism. The whole idea, uh, the, the Lockean revolution, uh, held that, that rights are not given to us by the government. They are given to us by God. Well, Goldberg, throughout this book, is wanting to be a stalwart defender of the Lockean approach. But by beginning the book by, through saying there is no God in this book, what he's done is he's cut, down, he's cut down the liberty tree. He wants fruit to grow on the liberty tree, but you can't have fruit grow on the liberty tree if you cut it down. I hope to write more on this. I, I hope to, uh, when I'm done assembling my thoughts, I'm, I'd like to do a, a detailed review of uh, this book or a detailed review slash critique of this book on my on my blog. So if you uh, listen to the podcast and you read my blog, look for it there. In our general study of sins in the New Testament, um, we have now come to hamartano and hamartia, the words the words for sin, and so we had to spread it out over a number of weeks, and we've come now to the book of Romans. It's not surprising that the book of Romans, the book that shows the revelation of God's righteousness, does so against the backdrop of man's sinfulness. There are so many uses of the words that we've been considering that we're going to have to divide our treatment of this one book into two. So uh, the first installment is going to be a consideration of Hamartano, and then uh, next week we're going to look at Hamartia in Romans. All those who have sinned apart from the Torah will perish apart from the Torah. That's in Romans 2.12. And those who have sinned in the face of the Torah will be judged by it, also 2.12. This means, obviously, that the Torah heightens man's sense of sin and awareness of it, but it does not create that moral responsibility. Men can sin without ever having heard of the Torah. The Torah compounds sin, it magnifies sin, it makes sin... Um, more uh, more egregious, but it doesn't create it. This is why Paul argues that all have sinned, Jew and Gentile both, which he argues in 3.23. Sin was in the world long before there were, there were any Jews in the world. So uh, the Jews, the Torah, did not bring sin into the world. God judged the, the whole antediluvian world for their sin, and there was not one Jew in it. Uh, one man, Adam, brought sin into the world, and death came to all men because all sinned. That's in 5.12. Death reigned over all, even those who had not sinned against the great light as Adam had. That's in 5.14. The gift of Christ was not like that of the one who sinned. That's in 5.16. Understanding these things, shall we sin, Hamartano, because we are under grace and not under the law? God forbid it, Paul says. Um, being under grace does not mean that you get to sin. Uh, being under grace means that you uh, are liberated from sinning. Uh, 
sometimes people think that being under grace, not under law, means that God's relaxed, relaxed his standards so that we get to sin now. Uh, but he says, sin shall not be a master, for you're not under the law. Being under the law means sin is your master. Being under the law means that you're condemned for sinning and you can't stop sinning. Uh, being under grace means you're liberated from sinning. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.